Hey everyone, thanks for clicking on the video. Before we start things, I just wanted to mention that I was looking at my subscriber count the other day and I noticed that 92% of yous who watch my videos ain't actually subscribed, so if you could, please click on that subscribe button because it really does help the channel out. And also, once we do hit 500 subscribers, I can finally do my giveaway of a free copy of WWE Battlegrounds on the console of your choice. So, after saying that, thanks again, and now, please, enjoy the interview. Hello, welcome to that 90s Wrestling Podcast. I'm your host, James Thunstall, and today's special guest there, uh, Along with Gorilla Monsoon, Bobby Heenan, and Mean Gene Oakland, this man was one of my childhood voices uh, growing up. And yeah, just so many memories remember this man. Today joining me is Mr. Sean Mooney. How you doing, Mr. Mooney? Good, good. How are you? Uh, you obviously, I mean, you're not that old, so you must have had to look back at all these VHS tapes to <laughs> <laughs> know what I did back then. So, well, uh, so I was born in uh, 89. Uh, okay. So... I'm 31, but um, I mentioned off camera my father was a fan, and he had some of the uh, VHS tapes lying about. Yeah. And uh, the first ever show I watched was Royal Rumble '91, and uh, I watched that. I fell in love with wrestling, and he had all the other tapes like uh, the UK Rampages, the uh, Coliseum Home videos, like the Super tapes, which you was the main star of them tapes, and. Uh, Growing up, just, you know, the Hulkamania, I watched all of it. So, uh, yeah, growing up, like my childhood, you was one of the voices of my childhood. So it's an absolute honor and a privilege to have you on the show today. Well, I'm glad you I'm glad you had me. Uh, I really uh, know that uh, the folks in the United Kingdom, especially back when I was working in the 80s, uh, when we just first went over there, it was our, you know, when they, they had done tours around the world, but it was the first really big foray into, you know, uh, making a footprint in, in another part of the country. I mean, another part of the world, I should say. And uh, I remember they had Sky Channel over there, and we started customizing uh, specific uh, shows that were going to be going on. And so I was kind of the first person to do that, and uh, I could not believe the reaction that we got uh, to that stuff back then. And and of course, it was a really, really different world. We didn't have the uh, the internet reach like we have now, this instantaneous connection to people. So a lot of people had to, if they didn't uh, subscribe to Sky uh, Television, Sky Channel over there, they had to wait for the tapes. That's how they got That's to right. see all this stuff. So uh, it was just uh, uh, amazing. And, I, and, and you mentioned some of these guests that you've got, uh, gotten on. I think that part of the reason is that they have a, a great... Uh, warm spot in their heart for the United Kingdom because a lot of those guys, uh, that was some of their first tours uh, that were out of the country and they got such a warm reception. I remember doing shows over there at, uh, uh, you know, the Albert Hall and and just yeah. blown away by the fans that were there. I, I mean, I remember Alfred and I went over there one time and one of the first times we went over and I had no idea. I thought, guys, anybody going to show up? I mean, and uh, we went to the hotel. There were people six and seven deep there uh, yeah. just waiting for anybody from the WWF, uh, WWE, as we <laughs> have to refer to it now. But I just remember Alfred and I looking at each other and like, what the? This is just unreal. 
and yeah. um, you know several other stories that uh, occurred over there. But I just remember my first reaction when we made a trip over there, just being blown away by it. Yeah, the uh, WEWF. It's uh, it's always had a strong fan base in the UK, and uh, yeah. when I mean we'll talk about SummerSlam '92 later on, but. Um, when we do get big shows over here, like we're so grateful to have these shows, and like whenever WWE does do shows over here, they sell out within minutes because uh, yeah. we don't get it as much. And especially during the late eighties and the early nineties, like uh, the pitch fever over here was sky high. So uh, yeah, it's great. And you mentioned like when the guests I've had on, like I always ask them about their UK stories, and that like they've always loved coming to the UK. Yeah. But um, it's great, but so I suppose we'll start at the beginning. Your childhood, uh, was you much of a wrestling fan as a child, or was it something you discovered a little bit later on? No, definitely later on. I grew up in, um, it was a small, much smaller city back then in Arizona, a place called Tucson. And uh, yeah, and so we didn't get a lot of uh, wrestling that would come through town very often, once, well, maybe once a year or a couple times. And I, uh, I didn't have a father in my home and my mom just was uh, trying to get by raising five kids yeah. on her own. And so we weren't, we didn't really have the opportunity to go and do a lot of things. And uh, really I was into sports very much, followed football, uh, American football and uh, you know, other sports. And I just didn't really, wasn't exposed enough to it. And uh, when I got the opportunity to go and even audition for uh, the WWF up in, in Connecticut, uh, I, you knew it, you, of course, at the time in the mid eighties, uh, the WWF was taking off. So of course, everybody saw Hulkamania developing and it was becoming mainstream very fast. And you had all of these people that were, you know, celebrities that wanted to be a part of it. So I, I was exposed to it. Then I become a fan of that whole, yeah. uh, you know what was going on then, but but that doesn't make you a fan at all because it was just <laughs> it was basically pop culture. It was become it was just a you know a movement that just had exploded. Hulkamania literally had exploded on the scene. So when I uh, got the opportunity to go up there, I really didn't know many of the you know even in the names of the wrestlers uh, you know yeah. were part of the the WWF. And I think that in some ways because I was working for. Major League Baseball productions at the time and had the opportunity to get in front of a camera um, that my attitude was it was just an opportunity to to broaden, you know, my experience in, in entertainment. Yeah. And so I don't think I would have I, I think that if I had been a big fan, I would not have been as relaxed as I was or, you know, yes. gone into it with the, you know, the feeling that, well, you know, I'll just go do it. It'll great. It'd be a great yeah. experience. And Whatever happens, uh, I'll, I'll probably be better for it, you know. And so, I think that that's why I, I had no idea how what a gigantic opportunity it was that I was yeah. given at the time. And fortunately, uh, Vince took a liking to me for some reason, and they called me back in. And I never had to re-audition or anything. It was like two weeks later they called me up and said, "Would you do you want to come work for us?" Wow. And I have since heard stories because I didn't know any better back then. I just kind of went with what was happening, got caught in the wave. And, when, you know, when you do something like that, you just go. Yeah. Uh, but having done primetime 
with Sean Mooney, the, the you know the the podcast that I did, and having an opportunity to interview so many different people that were involved in the industry, not just the superstars, and uh, you know people like Bruce Pritchard and who you know got reconnected, and I got to get a little bit more behind the scenes, you know, from what was happening at the time. And he said, yeah, we were auditioning hundreds of people. Yeah, we we got tapes and tapes and tapes, and if you even got a call to even come in, it was, uh, you know, just a great opportunity. Well, I think if I would have known that at the time, I probably would have been a wreck. But I didn't. Yeah, I was just very naive, <laughs> and uh, you know, I connected with Eric Bischoff uh, since then, and I never knew Eric back then. Never met him that whole time, and people right. always thought, well, you know, when I left uh, the WWF, I was going down south to work for them. I never got a call. Eric never called me to say, "Hey, you want to come work down here?" The, I, the only time I'd even had, you know, a hint of going down there was that Tony Schiavone had gone back down there and he called me and just said, "Would you be interested?" And I'm like, "Now nah, I want to do other things, Tony." Yeah. You know, but it, well, I don't even know what if 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 anybody said, "Why don't you call him and see if he's interested?" So, you know, it, it's the point of it all being that it's probably good that I didn't realize, uh, you know, what was going on at the time when I first went to work there because yeah. it really gave me the opportunity to just say, hey, you just, just go for it every day, see what you can do. And I quickly learned what the business was all about. It was a very, very closed business at the time. Yeah. They did not like outsiders coming in. And if it wasn't for people like Lord Alfred Hayes and Gorilla Monsoon, who literally took me and Bobby, who, you know, took me under their wings and, and, uh, made you know wisen me up to the business smart as they say smarten me up i wouldn't have survived a year there's no way uh with all the you know the 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 bumps and the the you know the the stuff that they do and uh you know you have to deal with uh, uh ribs and and uh, I, there's no way i would have made it so uh going yeah. into it it's probably a, a darn good thing that i was just uh, this naive kid who really didn't realize what the hell was happening just went for it Awesome. And uh, yeah. you mentioned... I got, uh, I got kind of got off track there. You didn't get much of my childhood in there, did I? <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> but I did, I did mention, though, that I mean, I grew up in Tucson and uh, I was raised by my, my uh, mother, who uh, there was five of us, and she was a school teacher. So you can imagine uh, yeah. they don't make any money now. And uh, they, they didn't make much back then. And um, she did a great job, but uh, it was, you know... It was uh, it was uh, a childhood where we didn't have a whole lot, and uh, so I learned to be pretty independent early on. So that's why I think when uh, different opportunities came up along the way, I, I was always ready to to leap, yeah. because uh, I didn't want to you know end up in a life where I kind of grown up in it. And believe me, it wasn't it wasn't squalor or something, but it was not yeah uh, you know affluent or or <laughs> wealthy in any way. And I went to high school out here and uh, went to the University of Arizona, which is here in Tucson. And uh, they did a show called Baseball Bunch back in the day with Major League Baseball. And, and if anybody's a baseball fan out there, uh, you know, Johnny Bench was a very famous catcher for the Cincinnati Reds. And he hosted this show for kids and they shot it out here in Tucson. Yeah. And I got an opportunity once I graduated because I had majored in, in radio television to become a production assistant. And I worked on that show and got to know people and uh, stayed in touch with them. And they called me about three weeks after they left uh, the shooting, wrapping up here. And I said, if you can get to New York City, uh, we'll give you a job. And I 
figured, why not start in New York City? <laughs> like, like <laughs> I was work my way back. And I packed three bags and went to New York City. I had never been there in my life. Yeah. And uh, went back there and worked and became uh, what we did initially is you sat there and watched baseball games all day in, in, a, in front of a, uh, two different monitors and you logged shots of baseball games. But I worked my way up and became a production assistant, then became a producer and produced a bunch of highlight films for teams like the Los Angeles Dodgers and um, did that. A lot of people don't realize that uh, I had a much uh, deep, much deeper background in production before I got a chance to really become a talent. And that right. was, I think that helped me throughout my career because I had an appreciation for what went on on the other side of the camera uh, yeah. because I did everything. I learned to edit. I learned how to edit music. I learned how to do interviews. I knew, you know, uh, how to write, how to tell stories. So when I did get the chance and I did with them with Major League Baseball, I got, to, I started doing, um, stuff on camera and that's how I became a talent and uh, got that opportunity to work for the WWF, which I did, you know, awesome. in the eighties. <laughs> cool. cool. And you uh, mentioned your audition and uh, I suppose I have to ask like uh, Vince McMahon, uh, what was it like meeting Vince McMahon for the first time? And what was he like back in the early days? I suppose you could say in the eighties. Well, um, you know, people look at what that, company has become i mean it's mm. it's a you know it's a stock uh you know company now i mean people it's public uh back then it was all family it was uh, sure. the mcmahon's and linda was uh linda mcmahon was the uh very much a part of how that business was run when i remember whenever i negotiated my contracts i would sit in an office with linda and yeah. uh hammer out whatever money so it was it was a uh, you know, we all lived in Stamford, Connecticut. Alfred lived there too. And, uh, you know, Gene and Bobby and Gorilla, they would come up every three weeks. And, and uh, that's when they would record, you know, stuff for the shows. But we lived in Stamford. And I refer to it, um, you know, for people like Camelot. It really was, yeah. it was like living in the, the kingdom of McMahon. <laughs> and the, everybody, I mean, I knew everybody in the company. I mean, Alfred started there when they, I don't know if they had six or seven employees and they, you know, when, when they, they made the move to Connecticut, um, because it, you know, it started up in new England further, you know, when they, when they first started it, but when they moved down to, uh, they did production in Maryland where they would, you know, but then when they finally moved everything to, you know, they bought a, a house in Greenwich and they had, uh, you know, offices in Stanford, it was a really small company. I mean, I knew who yeah. the, you know, we had uh, 120 Hamilton where the production facility was, but they had still had offices downtown. And uh, Vince had this Clinet, and I don't know if anybody knows what a, a Clinet is. It's this, uh, like a kit car, but a very expensive right. one. Yeah, you, you can only imagine. I mean, he was very flamboyant then, <laughs> and uh, and he would drive or he would drive around with this this big white Clinet with the with the top down and. He was really into the three-piece suits then. He wore them yeah. year-round, basically. <laughs> and uh, every color of the rainbow. I mean, he, they, he had, you know, red ones, yellow ones, uh, you know, aqua ones. Uh, and that's how he would, you know, be dressed every time you'd see him. So, uh, and they would have functions. You know, we had, they'd have parties and everybody went. And it was a really, it was a small uh, operation compared to what it is now. 
And so, uh, and, and, uh, you know, I certainly haven't worked with Vince for a very, very long time, but he was, you know, everything in that company, he knew what was going on. I I mean, and just to the minute detail, I would do, I do 90 markets a week. You know, if you guys are familiar with with the event center, uh, I would do just, and, and that didn't mean just 90 different times what I, no, I would do two weeks for this market, one week for this market, then that, that, and I, this, I mean, you're talking hundreds I would do of these event centers and there might be one thing he didn't like or something. And it would it not, he wouldn't necessarily pick up the phone and call me, but Howard or somebody, Howard Finkel, who was kind of the guy who ran the event center back then, you know, kept all the sheets straight because they weren't in a computer. Uh, he would say like Vince didn't, uh, he thinks you should mention this next time, you know, don't call him the, you know, the Avenger or something. And I'm like, how does he, how does he know this stuff? You know, like, how did he catch this is, you know, Poughkeepsie, you know, or something yeah. this is really small little market, but that's the way he, he was. I mean, he just knew everything. And, uh, I still know, I still have friends that are working, still working for the WWE. And they say, if anything, he's gotten, uh, worse, you know, like he's just still, <laughs> So, you know, how do you how do you work with somebody who, you know, is willing to work 20 hours a day? Yeah. You know, how, you, how can you say, well, I'm not going to do that. I, you know, well, he does it every day and he's never. What is he? How old is he now? You know, oh, he's getting so, that now. That's so I don't think it's changed. He wasn't he, he was so hands on then. And uh, I don't think that's changed that much. And uh, your uh, pay-per-view debut, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, I think I read it's right, it was uh, SummerSlam 88, and um, that was pretty much uh, as it was building up towards Savage and Hogan, the Mega Powers exploding, so we was right in the depth for that storyline, which, in my opinion, is one of the greatest storylines ever, so I have to ask the question, what was it like um, interviewing, like, Poke Hogan and <laughs> that aura, what was around him, I suppose? <laughs> Well, um, you know, the uh, I went to work for them in '88. Was I was I a part of the '88 SummerSlam? I don't even remember if I was because what I first remember was that first WrestleMania in um, in Atlantic City. That yes. was my first really big uh, event that I right. uh, was a part of, with uh, you know, of doing these live interviews in the in the arenas and the thousands and thousands of people. Like I had done them in other arenas, but that was just. Yeah, you know uh, that was a time that you just never forget, and uh, uh, of course uh, uh, the worst interview I've, I, I've to this day, you know, is is I was with with uh, Donald Trump, and right. you know, and my my earpiece is falling out. I'm mispronouncing his name. I'm I'm you know, everything is just the time they're trying to cue me, but uh, that was certainly a memorable moment, and uh, the Bushwhackers. Uh, licking me in the uh, which was I was not expecting, but it was a it was a definite trial by fire. Which Vince real he loved to do that to you yeah. to, to people. I mean, just to see, okay, you're gonna swim, or you're gonna drown, and uh, it it made you uh, you know learn very quickly. And it was and to think on your feet, and uh, those are skills that I've never ever uh, uh, you know forgotten about because of what I learned from the WWF. I tell that to anybody. They yeah. say, you know, like, how did you, where, where was the biggest influence you had in, uh, you know, doing what you, you did 
in your career? And I said, it was with the WWF. I mean, there's no other place that I could have done what I was able to do. Uh, you know, you, I, I did studio work every week, four yeah. days a week. I was in there doing the studio work. So I learned about, you know, I had to ad lib all of those, those event centers. So they, they, you know, there was, it would have been way too much copy to try and put into a teleprompter. All I did was they had a camera that they projected into from, of a card that was written in, you know, Sharpie. And yeah. that's all I had in front of me. Now, of course I would, you know, I could use the same verbiage basically for different markets because they weren't going to see this other one. But, you know, you just you just had to keep going. So that was a great skill to learn. Uh, you go to these live events, you'd be in front of thousands of people. You'd have to go out there and talk in front of a live crowd, knowing, knowing that you have to know what camera you're talking to. Uh, we would do a lot of uh, community work. So you'd have to go and host events with, uh, you know, crowds of people. And uh, I got to host all those Coliseum videos. So we, you know, we'd have these great sets and uh, get to work with all these guys. So, you know, that was a, a tremendous training ground for me. Prior to that, I'd done stuff with Major League Baseball, but most of it was just, you know, camera and put on tape and do your stand-ups or whatever. It was yeah. nothing like what uh, the experience I got during that five years with the WWF, which, you know, those skills are still with me today just from what I learned there. Yeah. So it was a great experience. And uh, like I said, while he was like doing interviews with Hogan, <laughs> even though you yeah. had the bully skills, did it like, <laughs> like these promos, did they like throw you off at any point? Or was it like, yeah, just, you know, just go with it. So uh, I can imagine what it was like just being with Hogan. Like, uh, what was it like actually being around him during that time? Um, well, by the time I got there, uh, you know, Hulk was at the top of that wave. Yeah. And um, I, I, I uh, wish I would have met him earlier yes. because, um, and, and I certainly don't know about, you know, how people, I've been around that many people that are incredibly famous in other, you know, uh, parts of entertainment. But, you know, if you know uh, Hulk Hogan's story, I mean, Hulk and, uh, and uh, Brutus, I mean, they were basically living out of a van uh, when they started. And even, you know, the whole stories about the trainings and him getting his leg broken and him coming back. And, you know, there were a lot, there were a lot of lean years for uh, Terry and, uh, you know, those guys. And so uh, I think you tend, and I think this is true about other, you know, big celebrities is that those people that are around them early on are, are people they trust. They have no other reason to want to be around them if they don't like them or appreciate, you know, who they are. Well, when you start getting to that level where, you know, you're a superstar. I mean, uh, Hulk Hogan was bigger than yeah. any star on the planet at that point. And um, so I, I, I never, I, I don't think that I ever really got to be close to him. Uh, we got along fine, you know, and I did uh, tons and tons of interviews with him and always, never had a problem. He was always uh, good with me, but I would have liked to have known him uh, better, you know. Yeah. I, I got a lot closer to Randy Savage. I, you know, I became very close friends with Randy. Uh, but like I said, at that point, um, Hulk was just, he was just such a, I mean, he, he was a huge star. He basically would, you know, come in, the limousine would drive into the arena yeah, uh, he could get out and do his thing, and then he was gone. And there was a reason for that because, you know, otherwise he'd never get out of the building. <laughs> and 
you know, so he would come in and, um, that's another thing, another great uh, experience for anybody in the world with yeah. if you're going to be an announcer to try and keep up with, you know, we were, a lot of those interviews were live. Uh, we didn't yeah. tape all of them. And uh, you, a lot of times you didn't know what was going to happen and you didn't know what they were going to say. And, uh, you know, I think some of the best moments that I was ever involved in were when I didn't and I was able to just roll with it and have a comeback and, you know. I uh, learned a lot of that from Gene. And uh, so uh, I loved it when I got the opportunity to work with Hulk. Uh, he was, uh, you know, just incredible. Uh, I, I, I loved the, the fact that, that he, you know, back then they didn't write e their interviews, not that any prob anybody probably could have then. But those guys, that was all their material. That, yeah. that, that was all of them. Uh, Randy, you know, was the same way. All of them, you had to. There wasn't, yeah. they didn't have writers, they didn't have a staff of writers. And so uh, they would basically, you know, know the scenario where they were and where the, in a timeline, whatever they were in a storyline with somebody, and they would go, you know, it's just basically three, two, and they'd have to do their promo. Some of them were better at it than others. Uh, you know, people can judge that for themselves, but they know who were the best, I think. Yeah. Uh, Randy up there, Jake Roberts, uh, you know, was was just tremendous there, you know, um, so that was just uh, an incredible experience. And I it, you didn't really know what was going to happen. And it was uh, it really, I think, added a, a great uh, deal of excitement to um, to the shows. I mean, because people just like, what's he going to say? What are they going to say? You know, okay. it was great. Awesome. Yeah, cool. And uh, one person I want to speak about, and you've done a lot of work with, and in my opinion, she's one of the most underappreciated, like, not just females, but persons in general in WWE history, yeah, sensational Sherry, and like, yeah. I mentioned off camera, um, my start, the, re, uh, the original concept of this show was reviewing classic WWE pay-per-views, and going back, uh, growing up as a child, hated Sherry, but now watching it, I right. appreciate how great she was, like, in her role. What was she like to work with, and what was she like behind the scenes? Oh, uh, if uh, <laughs> we when uh, when uh, we did uh, Spotlight together, wrestling right. Spotlight together, that was uh, an insane time. Uh, uh, Sherry was was uh, crazy in a fun way, yeah. but she beat the living hell out of me every show. I and, <laughs> I and she enjoyed it. Everybody, Vince loved it. But man, she would just, she, you know, the, you know, how they say in the business stiff, she yeah. would be, she would just beat the hell out of me. If you watch back at some of those shows, she just, uh, was brutal. Uh, <laughs> I remember one show where I, she had me tied up in a chair and, uh, one of the bits was, uh, where I think at the end of the show, I was, there was like a sign on my, the bottom of my feet and there was something like help or I don't remember. And the idea was she was supposed to flip, the, you know, turn me over in this chair well, she, and she was incredibly strong. I mean, she was in great shape. <laughs> she like lifted that chair up and like my, I like smacked my head. Uh, I didn't even know where I was. And that was normal. I mean, that was just a normal shoot with her. I guess she just used to love to push my buttons to try and see how I'd, you know, how I'd react and uh, love to pull ribs on me. And there's a, another show where she was supposed to get really mad at me for something I say. And then she's, you know, was going to 
you know, roust me or something and go off the set. And then she was supposed to start throwing these boxes at me, right? right. Well, the boxes are empty, but she throws the boxes and I'm kind of dodging them. Then she's like throwing trash can, uh, <laughs> I mean, objects that could hurt me badly. And I am just dodging these things like, to get out of the way. <laughs> but to her, it was just fun. Um, a, a tragic story. I mean, for, for with, with Sherry, I mean, she was, uh, uh, uh she had a, a very troubled life and, um, it, it's really sad how it, it ended. Yeah, and I, I'm telling you that all of these the the women in wrestling and and the the fortunes that they have uh, been able to uh, obtain from the business and how that they have become so respected in the business yeah. they owe a lot of that to Sensational Sherry and there's I been do. others along the way I never worked with China but um, if you are aware of what the business was like back then and and I'm it's changed somewhat but I still think it's a, you know a very male dominated industry but yeah. back then um uh, there was I mean if you're a woman in the business man you had to have a real thick skin and have to put up with a lot yeah and you had to put up with it if you wanted to keep working because a lot of these promoters were just as bad as the the boys and if you wanted to keep working, and she gave it back as as uh, two times uh, yeah. if somebody messed with her. And uh, the other thing about her is the fact that she crossed the over uh, into mainstream. She was as big a superstar as uh, many of the others, uh, you know, that worked with her and uh, was involved in, in uh, very high card matches working her way up, uh, you know, getting herself involved in, in uh, you know, she was a true superstar. Yeah. And few women had been able to do that. Anyway, I mean, Elizabeth in her way, but Elizabeth wasn't a wrestler. Okay. And I know that when um, she would go in there, to, you know, she was going to do a spot with somebody. And let's say the guy was supposed to uh, give her a clothesline or something. If that guy didn't lay her out, like give it the way he would do with a, 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 a man, she would take his head off. She would go after. I'm not kidding. And they were scared to death of her because she could give. She could deliver as much as they uh, gave out, and they knew they had to. Uh, you know, not not the next, but whatever you whatever we're doing, we're working in there. You better give it the same to me because it would make her look bad. It would make her look weak. Yeah. And uh, so there's a great great debt I think owed to her. She, I don't I, you know I don't she's been recognized, but nowhere near the way I believe she should have been, should be for what she did to the industry and and uh, and women uh, yeah. in the industry. Real she's uh, something else. Yeah, she is. Uh, like I said, grow, uh, going back and watching these shows, and uh, I review these shows with like a couple of my fellow podcasters, and uh, the work she puts in, and like the bumps <laughs> you mentioned, she would take like from likes of Hogan, and that is, you know, she was so great. But yeah. from another great person to a, a couple of great people, and you mentioned that they helped you, you know, guide you the right way when you joined WWF. Um, Bobby Heen and Gorilla Monsoon, my all-time favorite commentary team. Uh, I can only Mine imagine too. the fun stories they had yeah. behind the scenes, especially with you. Uh, how great was these two men? Uh, they were uh, they were just as great um, when they weren't behind a mic as when they were. Yeah. Uh, um, especially Gino uh, Gorilla. Um, he because I saw him a lot more. Bobby, if you remember, I'm, Bobby was 
working every day and then yeah. still showing up at the studio. I mean, he worked as much as any of the other superstars, right? And then and then would go go to TV. I mean, you know, all the TVs. But then he would come to Stanford too to yeah. shoot all. I mean, he worked, uh, you know, month after month after month. So, but uh, you know. Gino, I, I got to see him a lot more, and um, he was one of these people that if he, either he liked you or he didn't, yeah. and he just had a vibe uh, about people, and if he thought you were genuine and if you were working, I mean, I was an outsider. He had no reason to, uh, you know, help me out, and it, and it wasn't long after. Just had a few conversations with him. Uh, you know, I was born in Rochester, New York. Uh, he was very familiar with that area up there, having, uh, you know, lived there and, and uh, grown up and gone to school. And and so we kind of we shared that. But he really I, I think that the fact that he know how hard he knew how hard I was working to try and, and make it, you know, and, and yeah. try and get better every day. And he also knew how tough the business could be as far as if you're, you're an outsider. And he just gave me some, you know, great advice about. You know, just uh, no matter what happens, you, you just keep going. Uh, uh, you know, don't you don't have, don't respond to the ribs, but don't uh, be a you know shocked yeah. if it happens before me or whatever. <laughs> just take it. And uh, the other thing, one of the best pieces of advice he ever told me is that uh, um, you know you can be friends with these guys, but don't ever think you're one of them. Yeah. And uh, he wasn't the only one who told me that. Like Bobby told me that, and Alfred told me that too. And what they meant by that is a lot of people make the mistake, and I would see this happen time and time again, where they would get close to these guys and they want to party with these guys and, you know, think that they were one of them and you weren't. And uh, they would make you pay for that. <laughs> and all I wanted, I didn't, you know, I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to have a good relationship with them, but I didn't have to be their friend. I just wanted them to respect me. To me, that was the most important thing. And I just, every day, I would just make sure I did what I was supposed to do, be where I was supposed to be, uh, you know, didn't mouth off, didn't uh, do a lot, didn't go out, didn't hang out in the bars they were at. And that went on for, you know, where you go into the locker room and they speak Carney. You know, yeah. that went on for months and months and months. I'd walk in and they'd start speaking Carney or, you know, and I, they wouldn't. And then um, then uh, we did an event. It was one of the WrestleManias and there was a, a, a panel that uh, we had a lot of a few of the superstars, Brett and uh, Shawn Michaels. And, you know, and uh, I was the host of it. And I remember a question came up. This is when all the steroids was going on. Yeah. And uh, somebody asked a question to, I can't remember if it was a warrior or somebody about steroids and do you use steroids? And I immediately stepped in and uh, kind of deflected it because, um, you know, that's, this was not that forum, you know, this was yeah. fans wanted to talk to these guys. That was something else, but I kind of, I deflected it and I, uh, explained, you know, the situation that, uh, uh, you know, these guys are on the road every day and I don't know, they go to gyms and they work out. And, and, uh, if, uh, if, if, uh, you know, supplements are used or whatever, if they, that m many of these things, you know, if they may have used them, they weren't illegal at that time. So, you know, I, I can't even remember how I answered it, but I just remember after that was over, 
um, a couple of them came up. Brett said something to me um, about, you know, hey, thanks for stepping in there, you know, because that was a really tough situation for everybody. We don't know what to say, you know, or whatever. Yeah. And from that point on, it was, I was kind of accepted. I won't say I ever became one of them. I wasn't uh, a made guy, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like the mafia or something, but I was, I was accepted. And yeah. uh, that was it. So yeah. uh, it, it, it is, it, back then it was, that was hard earned. Uh, yeah. They didn't, uh, you know, they were very wary of people from the outside. They, you know, because they had not just people that were not talent, but behind the scenes and bringing in, you know, television people. And it was, uh, it was the wild west. I mean, you know, you had, you had a, you had a beef with somebody, they settled it back in the locker room. Yeah. You know, that happened all the time. I mean, that, you know, you don't see that happen now. No. So <laughs> it was, uh, it was, it was, it was wild. And, and, uh, I think just not, uh, trying to become part of that world, you know, Hey, you know, I want to be with one of you. That's, I think that made the difference for me. Yeah. Cool. And uh, one of the things I wanted to speak about was uh, WrestleMania six, and uh, obviously this is uh, Warriors' um, big moment. And <laughs> a couple of things I want to talk about. The first thing I want to talk about, and it was like I said, I started reviewing these tapes, and uh, your promo with the Ultimate Warrior. So you're talking, you're introducing the Warrior, then all of a sudden, like he grabs you and he throws you to one side and he's like, you can't share the same breath as the warrior. Yeah. And I was like, I feel so sorry for Sean Mooney. And uh, what was like uh, doing that interview with him? But also, like, obviously this was the warrior's big night. He became champion. And some people's labeled the runs a failure. I don't personally, but what was Hogan's reaction to like when Hogan, uh, when warrior became champion? Cause I, I so you hear like, I don't know if it's true. He was like, yeah, Vince would call me back in about nine months to become champion again. So what was the warrior like that day and him becoming champ? Wow. Uh, man, you're asking me to go back a while and remember these things. But um, <laughs> first of all, I'll just say with, with Jim, um, I, re I really like Jim. I think that at heart he was this uh, very uh, sweet person. Yeah. You know, and a, and a good person. And um, But like anything else... He was an outsider, you know, he didn't come up through the ranks. And back then, um, that's, you know, if you had some family connection, which a lot of those guys were generational, yeah. they'd come up, you know, their father was a, you know, a very well-known wrestler, or you had come up as a, you know, a jobber and worked your way up. Well, yeah. Jim was just this physical freak, you know, yeah. and had done other things, bodybuilding, which a lot of the guys really didn't have a lot of respect for, I'm just re check out the WBF, <laughs> but um, so it was a tough road for him from the very beginning. Yeah, and Vin but Vince knew, man, he had he had lightning in a bottle with this guy. He knew that he had it. He had everything uh, that you know he needed to become a huge star. Yeah, and uh, you know, even though he'd had some experience before he got there, he was still man really green. And Vince having him work with these guys and him, you know, missing spots and, you know, these guys got to work every day. Yeah. And so, and he didn't, didn't socialize with the guys. He didn't really, you know, wasn't, I don't think it was arrogance. I just think he was kind of socially awkward. Didn't really know how to, you know, especially and fit in with them. So, uh, that was a really tough road for him. Um, and then, and then the fame and the money. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, it's you hear that story over and over again uh, from from people when it just comes like that, and you're you can't go anywhere. You know, you're worshipped by and you know, everywhere you go, and so I think that got to him uh, a bit. But uh, in uh, answer to your question about that interview, um, I, you know, he was always volatile. I didn't, you know, but it, but that was a lot of the times we, like I said, I, you didn't know what was going to go on. I mean, we had an outline of what, you know, I was basically the mic stand in a sense to make sure yeah. that, okay, it gets there, it gets there, it gets there, you know, and what we're doing. Uh, so that was, that was fine. I never had any problem. The problem I always had, at least in back then was that, you know, you, you're not, you're not supposed to touch me. You know, you're not supposed to grab me because yeah. then I'm in a real awkward situation. I'm certainly no tough guy, but you can't make me look like a wimp, yeah. you know? And then the other part of it is, uh, you know, Vince was very much, uh, very, you know, it was important to him that I was this credible uh, news person or whatever. Yeah. You know, that was kind of my thing. Yeah. So for people, it was like, you don't rough me up. You know, you don't do that because then you make me look bad. You belittle me. And so that was the only issue. And I remember after that, I was kind of like, Tim, what was that? I mean, really, you know, I don't mind you doing stuff, but you can't do that. You can't, yeah. you know, physically. And uh, so I don't think I never really had any other issues with him after that. But you never knew what Jim was going to be there. You know? uh. like, and, and whether it was from uh, chemicals that might have been in his body, I don't know, from, uh, you know, the that made him look so awesome. I don't know. But he, there were times we would do signings and... Um, he might come and there would be, you know, line uh, half a mile long of kids and he would just, his head would be down. He'd just be signing and would never even look up. Then other times yeah. he would take, he'd be 30 minutes talking to one little kid. Wow. You know, and just, and, and genuinely, you know, talking to this kid and wanting to know what his life was about. And you knew that that was something that kid was going to carry with him forever. So, uh, it was always a roller coaster with him. No question <laughs> cool. about it. Cool. But I really um, did. I like. I I like. I really liked Jim. I did. Uh, and I just. And I. I. I could have you know a small taste of 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 what it was like to be that outsider and trying to fit in when, it, you know, they don't want you, and it's no. and, and and you could imagine. A lot of that came with envy too. A lot of these guys look look at this guy. Well, he's in the business two seconds, and look at him. You know, he's. But it's what sells. It's whatever. What I mean, Vince, you make me money. We're good. You don't make me money. I'll see ya. And uh, we've talked about some ribs, and the one person I want to talk about, uh, Mr. Perfect, Kurt Enig. Uh, oh, God. Famous for his ribs. Uh, I can yeah. imagine he's probably pulled one or two on you. <laughs> Do you care to share them? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Kurt is another one. And if anybody's heard heard my podcast or or whenever Kurt's name comes up, uh, you know, it's it really is kind of an emotional uh, feeling because yeah. he, I I became you know very good friends with him. 
and he was always such a great guy to be around, uh, you know, um, and he was, I loved doing interviews with him because yeah. he was, you know, not just, he was so damn good, but those, you know, he, he would just, uh, always have something great to go with, you know, he fed you where you, you know, to come back. And, and so, uh, he was, as far as ribs go, man, other guys, I just like, Oh my God, you know, he would just <laughs> be so brutal, you know, just, yeah. Oh my God. But, but he never did anything that was like really bad for me, but he would do stuff where, you know, uh, you know, he's always chewing the gum and he'd come in with an interview we might do with him and Bobby and he'd be like, you know, shut up Mooney, wherever he'd come over and he might, you know, put his arm on my shoulder or something. And, uh, like, like two hours later and three interviews later or something, I, I would notice that there's a wad, somebody say, you got a wad of gum. There's like a wad of gum on your shoulder. And it's like I'd done these interviews with a spot of gum on my shoulder that nobody, you know, noticed or whatever. But yeah, he would do stuff like that, you know, and yeah. hide, hide your, you know, you come back, your shoes are gone. But man, he was, he was the king of ribs. I mean, as far as what he would do, um, you know, to other people was just, brutal you know the the he, he if he found a an open uh, padlock god help you it's gonna, yeah. <laughs> it's gonna end up on somebody's luggage yeah he was uh he was something else there's no question about it awesome and uh one of the people i do want to speak about and uh this was one of the things when uh, you started your podcast and we'll get to your podcast later but like every week you kept mentioning lord alfred hayes and I want to say a big thank you to you because because of you and obviously the fans as well. Lord Alfred Hayes is now in the WWE Hall of Fame, and that was your campaign. It was like we have to get him into the Hall of Fame. So, what was Lord Alfred Hayes to be around? Uh, he seemed <laughs> with the, obviously the English attitude. I'm English. I'm being biased because he's yeah. one of my favourites, but he seemed like to be such a nice person to be around. Yeah, Alfred was a trip. Uh, he really we. Um, we had such a good time and, yeah. and really, uh, thank the Lord for him. And I do mean the Lord and also Lord Alfred, uh, <laughs> because he was a true Lord. I'm sure you know that yeah. it wasn't a gimmick and, um, he, man, if it wasn't for him, there's no way I, you know, that I would have lasted as long as I did because, uh, he, he definitely looked out for me, but he was, uh, just so much fun to be around. Um, quickly, I want to say though, he, he is in the hall of fame, but I am certainly not happy about it the way it was done. Um, yeah, he should have been honored as a, a regular inductee, not, uh, you know, how they, it's kind of, it, it reminds me of what they do, you know, like with major league baseball and then these writers get together and they'll put somebody in without really, you know, a vote and, yeah. uh, Alfred, you know, a lot of people don't, uh, maybe know all of his history, but. He was, I would imagine that folks in UK do, in the UK do, uh, that he was a, 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 you know, a great worker. Um, uh, I've seen a lot of tape on him from when he worked back in the day and he was a judo champion. So, you know, he, he was very good in the ring and, uh, a tremendous heel. Uh, he played that arrogant Englishman and, uh, looked down his nose at you and, God, he could just go for hours cutting promos. And uh, I don't think he was, he, you know, the, the latter part of his career, he was always a baby face, but I, he was never really comfortable with that. Uh, he always wanted to be the heel. 
<laughs> and uh, we uh, we did were able to have some fun where he did get to get to be a you know a little bit on the healer side when we did play by play. If you look back then, you know he'd give it to me, and yeah. uh, you know just to stir it up. And uh, that was pretty much for UK audiences. We did all the matches we did. A lot of them were either you know on the VHS tapes or or for Sky Television. And so a lot of that play-by-play, a lot of the Americans never got the chance to hear because we were, you know, re-voicing, you know, matches that Bobby and Gorilla had done or or Vince and uh, and Jesse. So a lot of a lot of Americans really never got to hear us together. And I thought we really uh, became a pretty good team Uh, early on. You know, I didn't really know anything about doing play by play and and Alfred you know coached me along the way I would get the opportunity here and there to, to work with Bobby um you know to get better and uh Alfred was just always a blast and we lived in Stanford together so we got to go out and he man he parted me under the table and I was you know 15 years younger than him 20 years younger than him and uh, he was, you know, we in Stanford wasn't a real big city, so uh, we 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 hit it pretty good back then. I wasn't uh, married uh, early on then, and so we had some really really uh, good times. And uh, but you know we got to travel a lot together, and he he really became a, a tremendous friend of mine, you know. And yeah. uh, when he was sick. After he left the, the WWF, I actually snuck down to Dallas where he was living and, and saw him in the hospital before he passed. Right. And uh, it was, you know, I look back at that and I just, knowing Alfred, I just knew that that was the last time I was going to see him. Yeah. They had, uh, he had, um, one of his feet was amputated. He'd had, you know, they you know how these guys, their bodies are a wreck. Yeah. And uh, once that happened to him, you know, it would just took the life out of him uh, in a lot of ways. And he was still the same old Alfred, but I just knew um, that it was never going to be the same for him. And yeah. uh, he was not in good health. Um, and as I said, you know, a lot of these guys, you know, I was re- also really close to Freddie Blassie. And, uh, you know, Freddie was just a, he also lived, um, he lived in Scarsdale, which isn't far from Stanford. And, and, uh, Freddie was kind of the ambassador for the WWF. Well, I lived there, and they never liked really letting Freddie completely loose at a right. <laughs> at an event because they didn't know what he was going to do or what he was going to say. So they would have me go with him as kind of the uh, the buffer, uh, right. you know. And so we would go to golf tournaments together. Freddie couldn't play golf, but uh, <laughs> he would ride in the cart with me and just give people. Uh, I don't know if I could say it. Uh, Grief, <laughs> one way to say it, and uh, he was just a on all the time. I mean, we would go to these golf tournaments, and you know how they would have uh, the longest drive, and or you know closest to the pin. And Freddie, unbeknownst to me, would move the the stake, and he'd put my name on it. And I remember we went to one tournament, and I won like longest drive, closest to the pin, and. <laughs> golf bags and I'm like what the and he's like shut up Mooney (laughs) (laughs) but I could go on forever with Freddie Freddie was uh, he was 
some something else, just like Alfred. Right. And uh, you mentioned earlier that um, you know, even though you got along with uh, Hogan, you got a, you had a close connection to uh, Macho Man, and I would imagine Elizabeth as well. So, what was it like being around uh, Macho Man and Miss Elizabeth? Well, I'll tell you one thing about Randy, and I think people appreciate it, especially now when they when they look back at those matches. Um, and if they know anything about where he came from, uh, you know, he grew up. His father, uh, of course, was um, in the business, and of course, Lanny, uh, his brother. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, he was a great baseball player, True. and uh, was had been was drafted. It was a, a shortstop, I believe, but you know, like baseball was his, his, uh, you know, his passion, loved yeah. baseball just, uh, and wanted to become a pro and, uh, had the opportunity played in the minor leagues and, um, like blew out a shoulder, I believe, yeah. and, and taught himself to, to, uh, switch hit, hit the yeah. other way. Um, and, and was proficient and, and, uh, you know, uh, but not good enough to be in the big leagues. Right. And the story goes that, uh, when he, you know, when it was over, he took his bag out with his bats and broke every one of them against a tree. Wow. And then, and then committed his, his life to the business. Yeah. But my point of, uh, my, my point of it all is the fact that, you know, uh, when Randy, uh, Poffo committed to doing something, he was, it was a hundred percent. Yeah. And and in those early days, you know, that, that he was running shows with his dad and and Lanny and and, uh, you know, they had they were kind of this uh, outfit that uh, what do you call it? An, an, an outlaw outfit, you know, yeah. and yeah, but but he learned a great deal, not, you know, not only from the business, from his dad, but like the business, like how to run business and run your business. Yeah. And he knew that uh, <clears throat> he had to come up with something different, you know, that to, to separate him self which he eventually did you know it was a collection of things you can you can find interviews that, that you know that has he evolved to you know oh brother you know and, and when it finally you know and then refined that and became the macho man but he was all about uh you know people talk about like he was pretty tight with money but he didn't he knew to, he had to spend it to make it that's why yes. he would spend all that money on those on those outfits that he would. He would have three, maybe four, sometimes, depending if he was involved in matches or whatever, um, a night, you know, that he would go out in different different outfits, and he paid a lot of money for those. And Randy yeah. knew that it would separate him from other people. And another thing is that he understood that, uh, and he, he would say it many times. Uh, anybody who's out in the the, the stands there paid money from the, the job they worked all week or, you know, saved up to come and see me. And I am going to give every ounce I've got. And I, I don't know many, anybody can really find a match that, that shows where he mailed it in. Uh, it never happened with Randy Savage. I mean, he went in when he had a staph infection with his elbow, if you remember, or he should have yeah. been in the hospital and performed, uh, tremendously. And so, uh, you know, the other parts with Elizabeth, was that for real? Yeah, he was he was obsessive about her. Uh, you know, he didn't like other people around her. And then that was all for that was all for real. That was a shoot. Yeah. But, um, you know, he if you, you know, were in that circle of people that he 
you know, trusted, then everything was good. Yeah. And, uh, I was fortunate that I, you know, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going down to Florida and spending time at the house, but as far as the working environment, whatever, we were, we were great, you know, we were good and, 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 uh, and friends and, yeah. uh, and loved doing interviews with him, but he was great. I mean, he was prepared, man. He'd come in and I don't remember many times of him wanting to do an, uh, again, yeah. you know, he hit it. And that was just from all the years of doing those spots and becoming the macho man. And so I always have had a, a tremendous amount of respect for what he did uh, in the ring and what he did for the business. Yeah. He's right up there with me. He's right up there with Hulk. Oh, yeah, I agree. For changing the business and making it what it would become. Cool. And uh, we've mentioned the UK a couple of times and uh, biggest pay-per-view in the UK, especially during the time you was there, SummerSlam 92. Uh, I had the privilege of speaking to uh, Davy Boy's daughter, Georgia, and uh, one, of the fun Georgia. She told, one of the fun stories she told me was like meeting you. She was like, I can't believe I met Sean Mooney. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> she, she was lovely to speak to. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, what was it like being doing the Wembley show in uh, the UK in 92, where uh, it was just such a massive show. So what was it like to be part of that? Well, I'll tell you, of all the events, and uh, and folks, please uh, forgive me. I'm sure along the way here I've, uh, you know, conflated uh, dates and times and, and events <laughs> from where I was and who, uh, you know. But uh, that event stands out to me. I, I remember so much of that because it, it had such an impact on my life. First of all, you know, going to the United Kingdom for that event at Wembley Stadium, my God, it was the 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 sight of that crowd there was just amazing. And then you have all these backstories going on. Uh, really, the main event was Davy Boy Smith and Bret Hart. Uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, people could talk about the, the way the other event, but that was, you know, so much happening. And I've learned since because I've interviewed everybody in the family. I had Georgia on, I had Harry Smith, I've become uh, close to him and, and, um, Diana and, uh, you know, to find out everything that was going on then during that summer, you know, of course, all the rumors, Brett, you know, talked about that. He had been in, you know, Davy Boy had been injured. There's no yeah. question about that. But the, like, what was he up to that summer? Yeah. Brett says, you know, he he never got back to me. The first time we ever even talked about the match was the day before when he showed up, you know, at the arena and uh, at the stadium. And uh, I'm telling if if that is the if that's what happened, my God, uh, you talk yeah. about somebody stepping up. And like as Diana says, if all that was going on, if he was doing That's drugs right. and all, could he have performed at that level? I don't know. These guys were inhuman to me. Yeah, what they would be able to do—they they are beyond the normal human by any stretch of the imagination. If if uh, you know how this business works and worked back then, where these guys were on the road for sometimes, you know four, six, eight weeks at a time before they even went home for a couple of days, you know, and uh, and then being able to go out there every single night and then finding a gym the next morning and working out and then getting on a plane and getting somewhere else and driving in a car, you know, just so. Uh, who knows? Uh, you know, like yeah. who, <laughs> who knows? It's maybe somewhere in between 
Uh, but that's the story. And Brett saying that when they got in the ring and after the first couple of spots, Davy Boy said, I'm fucked, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, like, uh, and, and Brett says, I called every spot in that match. But if you watch that match, like it is one of the best matches ever. Yes. Ever. It's one of my favorite matches I've ever seen in my life. And uh, whatever the truth is behind that, it, it's still a, a, one of the most tremendous uh, events in history, uh, in the yeah. history of wrestling, because of all that was happening there. So that was, uh, you know, one of the great events that was happening during that. And then you've got everything that was going on with uh, uh, the Road Warriors, uh, you know, that, uh, <laughs> you know, what, what was that? The, the, it takes off, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, so um, it, it's that was just so much going on in that event. And the fact that where it, where, where it was, you know, is uh, it, it was just a great, great uh, time. And I just remember every moment of that, that Alfred and I went there early and we shot um we shot stand-ups for some of the some of the videos, so we got to go to, uh, you know, Big Ben and and shot along the Thames and went to an English pub and we dressed up in um, Sherlock Holmes outfits and, you know, and it was just the, the whole trip. So that of all the events that I was ever involved in, that and I was involved in some great ones, but that one to me was stood out, and it was a, you know it was the SummerSlam, you know, it wasn't WrestleMania. Yeah. But it was just yeah. uh, un unforgettable. Yeah, hopefully we get another one one day. Um, yeah. But uh, we mentioned Brett, and a few months after this, uh, he became the champion. And uh, like from yeah. your time joining the company, like you saw him become tag team champion, intercontinental champion, then obviously he became World Wrestling Federation champion. So, how did you feel about? Uh, you mentioned you've spoken to all the Hearts and the Smiths, so, so you got a close relationship with them. So, how did you feel when they decided to put the belt on uh, Brett? Well, if uh, if you listen to the the episode that um, um, that I did uh, about Brett and we had him, you know, I had uh, at uh, Starcast, yeah. Um, and Brett talks about uh, what was going on at the time, you know. And if people they know their history, uh, there was a lot of turmoil going on in the company. Um, they're they're coming off, uh, you know, like all that stuff with with uh, going on with Vince, and they don't even know if the guy's going to be running the company, and and so there was just all this. A lot of guys were heading south uh, yeah. to go work for the WCW, and um, so I think at the time it was a really good decision. I think that Brett made a good champion yeah. for for the time there, you know, and uh, they didn't know what Hulk was going to be doing. Uh, Warrior was, you know, uh, doing what he was up to, you, you, you know. So I think that um, Brett, as a champion, I think for the time it was it was good for the company. I, I'm disappointed with the way it ended up, where yeah. Vince goes to him and said, like, I can't, I can't uh, honor that deal I just gave you. That was, I think yeah. it was a 10 years and uh, all these millions years. of dollars. Was it 20? Yeah. So yeah. it was this ridiculous, you know, lifetime contract, basically. And then yeah. he says, no, I can't do that. You know, <laughs> like, OK. <laughs> and I think that was, you know, since I was like Vince changing his mind uh, for some reason. And, uh, you know, that's that's 
where it got ugly, you know, and that's, yeah. and it's, it's just a shame because Brett is another guy that I think is one of the best ever yeah. uh, in the ring. And, uh, you know, going down to WCW and what happened down there and he was never really given what he was due as far as uh, what, and what he could have done. I don't know if it was just the way yeah. it was promoted or whatever, but that's not the way it should have ended for Brett. No. No, by any any uh, means, he gave so much to that company, he did so much for it. So yeah, I'm glad that, that somehow they've mended a lot of that with Sean yeah. and and uh, and Brett. So yeah, he's uh he's my all time favorite wrestler. So uh, yeah. Yeah. I love hear, hearing stories about him with people who shared the locker room with him. And uh, we're nearing the end of your WWE run. Uh, but one of the things I want to talk about was the first uh, Monday Night Raw and you, you and. Bobby Heenan famously did <laughs> a skit him dressed up as his auntie. Uh, it was so funny. Uh, so what was it like doing them skits, like filming the first Raw? And also what I wanted to ask is, like, when Raw came about, it really did, for me, signal the end of the Hulkamania era, really, and the direction the company was changing. So did you feel that same way when Raw got announced in the first uh, show? Yeah, uh, you know... Um... You know, people talk about ending that era, you know, the Hulkamania. And, um, you know, that was a that was kind of a mutual decision, whether or not, you know, I think it went back and forth and then Hulk wanted to be back. And, you know, but he also wanted to pursue other things. I mean, it was kind of like uh, what The Rock did, you know, uh, yeah. on a, a rock, you know, it's a different scale. But that's where Hulk was. So it was kind of like he had, you know, offers to do movies. He was doing TV shows and and. uh you know the you're getting the uh, you're getting the hell knocked out of you every night, and uh, you know you've been doing this a while, and it's like okay, so what's next? What 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 else can I do? You know, as far as in wrestling, what am I gonna? You know, I've been the champion, I've been on top, I've you know, so um, when when the when Raw came along, you're right, there was a lot lot happening, yeah. um, and I thought it was really innovative i i just thought it was there was something really unique about it and I've, I've told the story before too is that when we you know they had this idea they wanted to um make it more intimate instead of this big giant you know uh, at that point we always uh or at least prior to that i mean we always had like big arenas it was always at least fourteen thousand people or something at these events yeah. you know and of course wrestlemania is in there we were talking tens of thousands but um they really wanted to create this this intimate uh, wrestling experience for people, uh, whether they were in that building or at home and yeah. uh, doing it at the Manhattan center, which was this arena that was on another floor. You had to go up the building That's to right. get to the arena. That's right. <laughs> and, uh, um, and it wasn't very big. I don't know. I don't know how many people helped, maybe 1500, maybe I probably wasn't yeah, even so that I'm many. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and the, the, the way that was, you know, with the seats, the people are right there on top of you. It's a theater. And so it it really did capture that. It wasn't, it didn't feel like a ballroom by any stretch. And so I remember that that first that first show, and when it was over, I'll kind of like look around and go like, oh, that was that was different. There was something about that. You know, I don't know where it's going. It might last, yeah. you know, Vince may get tired of it in six months or something, which happened. But there was something really unique about that. Uh, as far as doing the the uh, bits with Bobby, well, if anybody ever saw me do anything with Bobby, you could tell how much fun I one I, I had, yeah. and uh, 
those those uh, those ones we did in front of the building, we uh, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> we uh, you know like anything else, they just told me, well, Bobby's going to come out dressed as a woman. Okay, so be ready. <laughs> you stop him from getting in the building. That's basically it. Yeah, it wasn't like he's going to say this. You're going to say that. This is a, you know, when he dresses up like the Hasid, and I, I got to go see my 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 uh, nephew, my nephew Rob. You know, and that Bobby could just riff, as we call yeah. it. Mean, everybody knows that, and I just was great. I was so happy just to be the straight guy, and and if yeah. I could, you know, make it happen for him, then damn it, I did my job, and. uh so, uh, you know, he was his his true comical partner was Gorilla Monsoon. But anytime I could step in, I was uh, very happy. Yeah. And uh, that was one of those nights where it was magic. You know, it didn't matter. I just wish we could have done that stuff all night. Just get him in something else and we'll go, yeah. you know, give him give him another costume. <laughs> because yeah. <laughs> it, it was uh, he was uh, definitely on and uh, and it was his element, you know. Cool. So, um, and uh, Fergus Straight, your last pay-per-view uh, was basically the uh, pre-show, I suppose you could say, for the WrestleMania 9, and you decided not to renew your contract and decided to leave and, uh, you know, done a successful career becoming an anchorman. But before we leave WWE altogether, the one guy I really want to speak about, uh, the late, great Gene Oakland. So um, mm-hmm. the great is, you know, your second place, but probably... Uh, <laughs> Gene I don't Oakland, know about the, that. Yeah. Oh, I, no, you are. But second place, uh, but first place uh, backstage interviewer, it's always going to be Gene Oakland. So, what was he like to be around? Man, that uh, we don't have enough time. Uh, but uh, <laughs> Gene was a one of a kind. Like, there's, there, there will never be another Gene Oakland. Yeah. Um, and, and if anybody's heard me talk about Gene, I always say it, I will say it again. It was Gene Okerlund, and then uh, there were the rest of us. Yeah, that's that's how nobody came close to him. Nobody uh, will will ever. Uh, Gene just uh, was this. I mean, his in his heart, he was a salesman. Yeah, and he could sell you anything, and he knew it. And uh, his sense of humor was just as sharp when uh, he was off camera, when he was without the mic as it was when he was on that stage and uh, nonstop. And it just when you, you know, you're, you're tired, you're, you've had it. And then he would have a, a, some quip that would drop you. It would be so damn funny and yeah. many, I can't repeat, but <laughs> um, I, I, I have a, a great debt. Uh, I owe a great debt to him because he was another person that, um, you know, first of all, Gene didn't mind the fact that, uh, um, that he had somebody else to, to carry some of that weight, you know, that to do something. Because yeah. Gene, before I got there, uh, you know, uh, Craig DeGeorge was there, um, uh, Craig Miniverni, but uh, Gene was the, he was the workhorse, man. Gene would go and had done it for a long time where they'd go to these arenas and all day long, he would do these interviews, two and a half minutes, boom, 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 one after, and he might do 50 of those in a day. I mean, just insane. So uh, part of it was the fact that he liked somebody that could carry some of the load and he didn't have to be in Stanford all the time and I could do the event center or whatever. 
but he didn't have to be as gracious as he was. He didn't have to, uh, you know, give me as much as he did to, to help yeah. me a little aside things. And, um, he did, you know, he, he was so supportive of me from the second that I got there and yeah. anytime I needed anything, I could call him or, you know, after an interview or ask him a tip or whatever. But mostly, most of what I learned from Gene was just from watching the guy. Right. And, and, uh, you know, I, I never wanted to imitate him in, in, in any way, but I learned so many things to become my own character, whatever you want to call it, just from watching him, like Gene's timing, how he knew when to step back and let it happen, how he knew when you needed to come in and move things. Yeah. Uh, pick your spots. You, you got a good quip. It's, not, it's okay to put it in there, but make sure you're not showing up anybody else on that stage. Uh, how to you know, look like you're frightened, but you're not a wimp, you know? Yes. And just that, that kind of stuff. I, mean, I was still, I was clearly my own, you know, whoever I was, yeah. everybody wants to interpret that, but just watching him and the way he did things, I learned, oh God, you know, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, like stuff that you carry with you that, uh, from everything else I've done since was just like watching the guy, you know, who, uh, you know, it's the leader of a band or something and plays uh, like Benny Goodman playing the clarinet, you know, yeah, a master. And I got a chance to, to, to be like this apprentice. I got to be able to just soak that in. Yeah. And, uh, and, and Gene worked pretty much until he died. I mean, yeah, he had been right. in Stanford two weeks before that. And, right. uh, so he just, he just loved it. He just loved it. He just loved working um, one of the great, one of the, I'm so happy, uh, that I got to, to see him a, a, a few times before he, he passed away. But, uh, one of the best times is when I did the, uh, Edge and Christian show and, and, the right. I don't know if you've seen that, but know, yeah. you know, the whole premise <laughs> is, is that we, we've been invited on the show and we think it's to become like the house announcer and it's to become like the house bartender and, <laughs> and we're competing against each other for this job. <laughs> And uh, they had stuff in that that teleprompter uh, for Gene line, and I. I took shots of it, lines for him to say to me that just was like, "Oh my God!" I mean, just raunchy, you know, just like. And Gene just he delivered it with uh, with passion, and uh, you know, we we actually we got to have a a couple of drinks and uh, and just talk about that you know that ride um but just just incredible and there's people that were very close to him but god they miss him so much every day you know kevin yeah. dunn was really really close to him and a great friend for forever and i'm sure that that is a, a big hole in his life you know that that yeah. uh, gene was they were they were really close uh, to each other but so many other people that you know lives that he touched and worked with him and um just one of the you know in any form of entertainment Gene mm. is right up there with the, with the best, right? You know, like Bobby too. You could have yeah. put them anywhere in any form of entertainment, whatever stage they landed on, they would have been stars. Yeah. I've always said, and it was one of the things I mentioned, uh, providing, you know, it's a shame podcasting wasn't around earlier. Cause could you imagine a Bobby Heenan podcast or Gene Oakland podcast? Oh, it would be, 
amazing. So it's yeah. a shame. You should yeah. listen to that. If you haven't listened to that episode, I did get Gene on, and uh, and we had him on for quite a while. He like yeah. said, Mooney, if I knew it was going to take this long, I would have brought lunch. <laughs> but we, you should listen to that episode because uh, we do go back. And, you know, there was things that I, I got to ask him that I never got the opportunity when we worked together. And uh, so it was, uh, it, was a good, it was a good conversation for me, too, just to yeah. have that. You know, it's a different, you know, where you actually get to sit down and ask questions. Yeah. But, uh, that was, uh, I'm so glad that I, I got the opportunity to do that because after that, then we, you know, stayed in touch um, somewhat, you know, where we, I would see him at some of these shows and uh, call them a few times. And yeah. uh, that was, uh, I'm just so happy that that happened. Cool. And uh, speaking of podcasts, that's one of the things I wanted to talk about. So uh, I remember scrolling through my phone, I think it was about three years ago, maybe two, I think it was about three and trying to find a new podcast and it's like oh sean mooney podcast i think you've probably done about six or seven episodes probably more even but yeah. uh i was like oh sean mooney's got a podcast and i listened to the first few episodes and you had hacksaw on and then it pretty much the concept of the show changed uh where you was just straight interviewing all these guests so how did you get into uh podcasting and um like the success you've had like you've had some unbelievable guests on your show well, uh, uh, Court Bauer, who is uh, MLW, he runs the yeah. uh, MLW, um, had contacted me and said, would you ever be interested in doing a podcast? And I'm like, you know, this, like, no, I hadn't really <laughs> thought about it. I don't know if people were doing wrestling podcasts. He said, well, if you ever uh, are interested, let me know. And so I kind of forgot about it. And then, uh, I don't know, a month or so later, he, he contacted me again. And, uh, and, and said, let me, let me just talk to you. So we had a conversation and he said, you know, I'd love to have you do, he was, you know, he had his own, uh, he has his own network and they had, I don't yeah. know, six or seven people on at the time. And, uh, he said, you know, uh, I think it'd be great. And we could do, I'll get you a co-host, you know, and then they, they you can, they can ask you questions. And I said, no, I said, I've been a host my whole life. I don't need a host. You know, yeah. I said, if I'm going to do it, I'd rather, you know, get somebody else. Um, from the other side who can provide insight. I can talk about, you know, the events and my perspective, but I'll get somebody else who was actually there. And so I'm like thinking, oh, who, who could I contact who was still alive and, you know, <laughs> uh, could would be good. And I'd always gotten along really well with Hacksaw. I always thought he was one of the funniest guys in the, uh, in the, uh, the you know, the whole superstar lineup. And yeah. so I got his phone number and I called him and we had this long conversation and I told him I have this idea for the podcast. And he's like, ah, I don't know. And, uh, and this is after I called him about, you know, 10 times, you know, Jim, <laughs> call me back. I just got something. Finally, he answered the phone. Cause he probably was like, God, if I don't, he's not going to stop calling. And then, so then he's like, ah, I don't know. I don't know. Call me next week. I got to go somewhere. So, well, anyway, I finally convinced him. I said, look, just, just, we'll just do a pilot. We'll just do one yeah. episode. If it works, you like it, you know, maybe we'll do another one. We'll see if it goes somewhere. So we did did it, and uh, it was fun. And, it was, you know, I thought we gelled pretty well together. The chemistry was good, and 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 uh, uh, Court listened to it, and he's like, yeah, it's, this is great. And so we launched it. Um, but, you know, at the, at the time, you know, these guys are in it. They, people want to make money, you know, like especially yeah. these, that's what, you know, Hacksaw works, I don't know how many weeks a year. He's all over the place. Uh, yeah, sure. I know it's been really tough lately because nobody can do anything, 
But Jim was on, you know, on the road every week. And um, his wife, Brenda, goes with him. You know, that's the, what's different now. And he enjoys it. But it was tough for him to come back and he would have his two days at home or three days at home or whatever before he was off doing something else. And he'd have to do a podcast. And yeah. it wasn't like he was, you know, tech savvy. He's going to bring a laptop with him and set up in the hotel room. So that made it tough. And uh, so after about 20 episodes, he's like, I don't know, I, you know, uh, we weren't, we we're doing okay, but we weren't getting sponsors. They always, the back, is, back then it was like, you know, 90 days and then we'll see what happens. And then 90 days they have to evaluate, you know, like, so he was out. Uh, he said, look, I, you know, I just don't have the time to do it. And, and uh, so I really like doing it. And I, in the original concept, I wanted to do the event center, you know, where concept where I'd interview guys from yeah. those days, but I'm like, who the hell is going to talk to me? But at this point, we'd, uh, you know, I'd talk to a bunch of people. And I thought, I'll just go week to week, see who, yeah. who, who comes on. And we blasted, I don't know, three something years to almost 200 episodes. I think we did 200 episodes. Yep. So I finally just ran out of people to talk to. The people I really wanted to get, I still couldn't get. And uh, so it's uh, the, all the episodes are still up there. We, we uh, put them up. And you can certainly listen to him prime time with Sean Mooney and uh, the, everybody that uh, you remember from those days, I have an episode. Uh, yeah. So you should check it out. It's, it's still up there. And, and they're great conversations. I enjoyed them so much. And I always tell people that it's not, it's not even so much about wrestling, those, those conversations. It's about life. It's about people yes. who, in man, many cases, you know a lot about these wrestlers. They come from very humble beginnings, you know. They 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 didn't have any uh, you know a, a lot of money, um, so they didn't even have opportunities many to go to college you know, and they had a dream, and you can imagine when you're 18 years old and you're going to become a professional wrestler and people are like, yeah, good luck with that you know, and these guys just wouldn't quit, yeah. and they wouldn't quit and they wouldn't quit and they wouldn't quit and uh, finally things started happening, and they you know, went up the ladder. And then of course things happen, <laughs> you know, bad things happen or, you know, it's like, uh, uh, life and, and they're inspirational because these guys never gave up and they yeah. succeeded and they still live that way. You know, nothing, they just keep. And so a lot of them are great lessons in life uh, yeah. of just hearing these guys stories. So that's another great reason to listen. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we're nearing the end but the one thing I did want to speak about also uh, obviously before COVID put a stop to things was uh, NWA Power which you know during the uh, time it was on it was my favourite wrestling show because it was just a, such a great throwback yeah. with a modern twist yeah, you could exactly. say and uh, it, it was such great and you know we're praying for the day it returns like we're hearing you know Nicole just say you know hopefully things might happen in a couple of months but like you know with COVID, no one's got a clue. But before, uh, before you know, hopefully it does come back. But I want to speak about your time there. So, how much do you enjoy working on Power? It was really, it was awesome. It was brief. Uh, yeah. I only actually went to um, one uh, TV taping where they did a bunch of shows, and then I did mostly stuff remotely. I would, I had a green screen set up at my house, uh, you know, and uh, which I have. Here it's just not up, but I can, you know, I can be anywhere, and yeah. I have all this, all the equipment to do this. And, but um, it it was, 
it was really unique. You said a throwback, and it was just cool yeah. uh, to be in that environment. You know, yeah. they had this little studio, very much. They had it basically uh, a replica of of the old NWA with the, you know, the podium there and and the ring and the the fans right there and that interaction. You shut up, you know, like people are just saying <laughs> crap right, yeah. from the from the stands, and it was it was. Uh, you know, they were on to something. There's no question about it that Billy uh, was on to something with that. And and it's it's too bad because, yeah, it's, uh, you know, everything has been uh, put on hold. And I don't know what these guys are doing. I mean, um, you know, that's how they live. That's the, that's how they make their living is doing events and going to, you know, shows and going to memorabilia shows and doing uh, stuff like that. And uh, it's we can only hope that this wraps up soon. I, I, I hope it comes back with a vengeance. I hope we didn't lose too many who had to choose other, you know, paths just to make a living to take care of their families. Um, you mentioned Nick Aldis, who is one of my favorite people, uh, on the planet. He's just an awesome guy and uh, such an appreciation for him and his, um, and how he loves the business and, and the, and he loves old school, um, you know, I could talk to him for talk to him for hours. In one of our first conversations, he was telling me how much, you know, he loved the idea of you know when they come out and the referee gives you instructions. You know, he's just creating yeah. this, and uh, and he loved the the old format of uh, of of the interviews. You know, that uh, having uh, a stick man out there with you, and I really do. I think that's a big part that's missing. Um, yeah. you know, basically what you have when you have people that are just, you know, holding the mic, they don't have this interaction. You don't have people that know how to, you know, do that, um, because they don't get the opportunity. I'm not taking anything away from their talent. It's just that that's not what they let them do. Yeah. So, um, anyway, Nick is, is one of those people that, uh, uh, he's a throwback, you know, and he's yeah. like, uh, that's why I think he's, he's a great champion, but I hope he gets an, I hope he gets a bigger opportunity. He's really, really loyal, um, yeah. to the NWA. And, uh, but I think that there's so much more ahead for him. Um, I don't know if, uh, he, he would ever to even take that opportunity to go with the WWE. I don't know, but he's, he's a really great performer. I think he does. His promos are awesome. And a lot of those guys that were coming up, and I've seen them, you know, that that they've uh, gone to, um, you know, uh, these other outfits and, and are doing really well. Um, that's because of that. They were they were able yeah. to really develop in, in a period of time. You know, Ricky Starks is a guy, another guy. I just remember looking at him going, this guy could be a star, you know, when I saw yeah. him. And so I think you're going to see stuff, uh, you know, with him. But, um, you know, it's. It, it's it, it's unfortunate that we've had to, this major pause because I think a lot was happening. You know, you had a lot of uh, these independents doing really well. Um, you know, so we'll see what happens. But I think that uh, you know the business is never going to go away. There's oh, well, no. we know that. Uh, we yeah. see how that happens. It may it's got it's uh, it goes up and down. I mean the even you know the WWE. Who knows what will yeah. happen? But uh, Vince is going to live to 150. So you know. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Cool. Yeah. And uh, we've gone long, got two more questions to ask you before we let you go. So, one of the Yeah, what did I say? I was going to be here for an hour. Boy, look at you. Yeah. Uh, you got me. You got yeah. me going. Oh, it's half past 12 over here at night. So, uh, don't yeah. worry, we'll be gone soon. Oh, boy. You got to work in the uh, morning there? 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll be up at 6. Yeah, me too. I'm up at one thirty. <laughs> All right. Uh, so one of the things I wanted to ask you, uh, we mentioned Mr. Perfect's ribs, but what is your favorite rib you've had during your time in wrestling? Well, uh, one of my favorites that I actually got to pull off because, uh, you know, I worked with Bruce Pritchard pretty closely. He was the, he ran the television facility and he was always ribbing me, yeah. you know, he's always doing stuff, you know, uh, so, um, I'd always wanted to get even with him and, uh, we were on the road. I can't remember what it was for, but we ended up having to share a hotel room. And, um, so, uh, I had to catch an earlier flight and, uh, this is, a, a, a rib I had learned from, uh, um, one of the other wrestlers, uh, that had mentioned this one to me and that I've always saved it up. I always thought like one day that'd be awesome to do. Yes. So, um, I, I, I had to get up and leave early. So, I, you know, I got showered and, and, um, before I left, uh, I, uh, I took every single towel in the, uh, in the hotel room there and I put it in cold water and wrung it out and then hung them neatly on the, on the, well, Bruce had to get up and, and shortly after me, and he wasn't going to find a, a he was going to have to use toilet paper if he was going to take a shower. <laughs> so that's like one of the best ones that I ever pulled off. And he, he even admits that was a good one. Yeah. So, um, but God, there's, uh, so many, so many, uh, ribs that these guys would pull on each other. Um, one of the favorites that, that they would always do, and I'm sure you, you've heard of is, uh, on planes, you like you never took your shoes off, right? Because they would disappear. And then um, I re I remember there was a promotions guy that was with the company who had to travel with us, and he made the mistake of falling asleep yeah. and taking his shoes off. So when he woke up, he had the um, the shaving cream unicorn on top of his <laughs> head and no shoes. Wow. And when he got off, I just remember. That he still didn't. Nobody told him because they kayfabed him the whole way. They weren't going to tell him he had shaving cream on his head. So he's walking in the terminal with no shoes, wow. <laughs> with no shoes on, and uh, and he uh, uh, and they they don't like put your shoes somewhere you get them. They just throw them in a trash can. You're not getting them back. So <laughs> um, one of the most uh, the craziest one, and I think this was I I didn't witness it, but I had uh, it told to me that. Frenchie Martin was famous for, uh, they remember they used to carry the Halliburton, um, cases yeah. and he had one that, he, that, uh, I don't know how, what he would do with ribs or maybe he was using, I don't know, but he had one that was apparently was filled with sex toys and <laughs> one of his favorite ribs that he would do. And the guys would all know that be, you know, in on it is that we, you know, cause they'd get bored to death in terminals and airports and, uh, you know, they have all the seats that would be facing out into the yeah. you know place the walkways and what he would do is he would be like walking down the the walkway there with all these people going and he would look at the most you know, like vulnerable person like uh like nuns or you yeah. know somebody that just would be appalled if they saw something like this and so he would uh walk walk up towards towards them and then he would take a bump where he'd fall down and as he fell down it's Kate. He would open this case up and all of these <laughs> unbelievably nasty sex toys, dildos and all these things would just <laughs> fall all over the floor right in front of this person. And there'd be like this, 
And then he would be, oh my God, embarrassed, you know? So as he's picking these up, he would be fumbling with them and then he'd like put, put one in the person's, you know, arms and they'd be like holding this. <laughs> so that was, uh, that was, uh, an, un, that was, to me, that was, had to be one of the funniest things to witness ever. But that was like one thing that, that he was known for, for doing. Awesome. I wish I, I would have seen it in person. <laughs> And uh, yeah, I mean, very last question. So me personally, I believe you will be in the Hall of Fame one day. So when the day oh, does man. come. You've got a long time to wait. I hope, uh, I don't know how you plan on living, but uh, that isn't <laughs> something that I, I plan on, on getting a call. But uh, thank you. I appreciate oh, that. It's fine. But if the call did come one day, who would you like to induct you? Well, the people I'd like to induct me aren't here. Um, yeah. That's which is, uh, which is, sad um you know alfred certainly would have been my first choice or gino um but god i don't know today that who even remembers me from that uh, that time that's uh, that's uh, that's out there but um i don't know maybe hacksaw yeah cool awesome right mr mini uh we've gone long i do yeah. apologize i believe we both have not. to get up yeah, believe it or not, I've got like another page full of questions to ask you, but we're gonna have to uh, leave that for another day, I suppose. <laughs> but uh, thanks again for coming on. But before we do go, do you want to tell everyone where they can uh, find you on social media and also find your podcast? Yeah, well, if uh, I, I realize, I you know, uh, a carefully placed plug um, is uh, I'm I'm also doing another podcast now that I started when I was doing primetime uh, called Upside of Forty. And it uh, it's basically a podcast about uh, just that um, for men of a certain age who uh, yeah. who's, who are dealing with everything that we deal with. And when we get over uh, 40, 50 into our 60s, uh, a real uh, hilarious side of it. And I just get all kinds of uh, different people on to talk about all kinds of different subjects that uh, affect our lives. And uh, you can check it out. It's Upside of 40 with Sean Mooney. It's on Apple Podcasts and uh, all the uh, other platforms. And uh, I'm having a really good time doing that. Um, who knows? You know, uh, I may get back into the um, wrestling podcasts, uh, you know, depending on. Uh, I've got a few ideas, but uh, right yeah. now I'm, I'm enjoying doing this and um, I'm still working in television. So, but I'm getting to the point where uh, I, I, I would love to do that full time, you know, be able to do. Uh, the podcasts and and uh, and do some of the other things that I've been wanting to do for a long time. So, upside okay. of forty. Oh, also you can uh, and you can get in touch with me. Um, just send an email. You can uh, primetime mooney at gmail dot com. That's primetime mooney at gmail dot com. If you have any you know any reason to uh, want to ask me a question or something, I'd be more than happy to to answer. Awesome. And yeah, Mr. Mooney, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure speaking to you. Like I said, you're one of the voices from my childhood. So to be able to speak to you for the past hour and a half has been an absolute honor and a privilege. So um, hopefully we can do this again one day. Yeah. Well, I, like I said, I, I, I uh, was supposed to come over there for a show before all this happened and uh, was hoping to get to Ireland and, uh, and, and, you know, go back to some of the places I got a chance to visit back then um in the uk and in england so uh, i hope that happens and uh yeah. also i just want to remember, you can also follow me uh at ups at upside of 40 on twitter that's oh, cool. uh, another place you can get to me okay cool that's great um yeah thanks very much and hopefully 
COVID restrictions gets lifted and our next interview yeah. together, we can actually do it in person. Do it in person. I'd love that. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck <laughs> with the podcast, man. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> All right.